bringing it to a close that we've been looking at all summer called Louder Than Words. In this series, we're wrapping it up with these four chairs. We've been talking about this now. We are on the third week. Each one of these chairs represented something a little bit different. Uh, we've dealt with chair number three, which was the chair that uh, is full of knowledge, full of religious understanding, uh, knows all the answers, knows how to check the box, but does not know Jesus. Our sermon dealing with that was the rich young ruler and how he came to Jesus, running to him, wanting the answer of eternal life, because that's what he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But left very sad because the spiritual answer did not line up with his physical uh, barriers. Then we looked at a sermon last week dealing with chair number two, and it's kind of dealt with that in John 6, and how it was people who started out, they were walking with God, they were seeing many things, but then over the course of time, there began to be space in their walk, and they began to grow apathetic, they began to grow cold. Matter of fact, it's called the Laodicean church age. It's where they say that we're increased with goods and have need of nothing, according to Revelation. But God came to them, the angel of the Lord came to them and said, but you're poor, you're wretched, you're blind, and you're naked. Now that's a pretty bad report. But he said, you think you've got every single thing together. And then today I want us to look at chair number one. You say, well, why didn't you deal with these in order? Because we like to mess with some of your minds like that. You know, you, you people that like it all, all, everything tucked in. Now, that's not why. It's just the way they were flowing in our series. And we wanted you to understand where people currently are to realize the value of chair number one. The thing about chair number one is that it's not a comfortable place to be. Matter of fact, if you're looking for a place of comfort, this is not your chair. As we talked about this early on, the first sermon that I preached on this, and we said if we ask every one of you to come up here and, and take a chair, most of us would move to this little uh, flowery chair here that is full of cushion, and, and then we'd begin to work our way on down the line. The thing about this dynamic is that God is trying to move in our hearts and lives and the chair number one represents the person that is sold out, that is, has signed over the title deed to their life, and is willing to give it all for Jesus. And today, I want us to look at that for just a few moments. Our passage of Scripture today is going to come from 2 Timothy, and if you'll just turn there, we're kind of going to be all over this book, and the good news is that it's just simply four chapters, so we don't have a whole lot of, uh, of place to travel. But when I, when I was going through this, the greatest example uh, of this uh, man was, 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 was John, the Apostle John, who when Jesus was crucified, he was the only one left at the foot of the cross. There with Mary and some of the other ladies, all the other disciples had left and had walked away. And the other great example of this, I believe, is the Apostle Paul. Paul was someone who was full of chair number three. Matter of fact, he worked for chair number three. He was in the religious business. Matter of fact, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee is what he said in his resume. He said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was uh, circumcised on the eighth day. He went to the school of Gamal, which was the greatest school that you could go to for religion in that day. He was learned. He was educated. He was the best of the best. He had done his time. And he had risen through the ranks of, uh, of the religious culture and was a person of influence. Matter of fact, 
when you see Stephen being stoned in the book of Acts, you realize there was a young man there named Saul, who, which is Paul's previous name before his conversion, and he was just holding the, hand, the garment of the ones who were throwing the rocks. So he had done the bloody work, he had done the time, and he had moved up through the ranks and was now able to just give the orders. And he was on a pathway to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, to give orders to persecute those who were believers. And that's where he had the head-on collision with a thrice holy God that turned his life right side up. Now, many of you may think, well, Pastor, I've just done too much bad. I've been this way too long. I had too many years in the world. There's not much that God can do with me. Well, I challenge you to study the life of Paul. He was a murderer. And God used him to write over half the New Testament. He was a person who was on the wrong pathway, but when he got on the right pathway, everything began to change. Paul was someone who was faithful to the end. Matter of fact, the second letter of Timothy to the uh, young mentee is the final letter that Paul will write. Some people have said that as Paul was writing this letter to Timothy in his jail cell, he could probably hear them sharpening the guillotine, getting ready to behead him. Paul was someone who knew what it was like to be in jail. He was, knew what it was like to be persecuted. Matter of fact, if you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, he gives you a resume of his persecutions. He was stoned, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked. He was in perils in the night, perils in the day, perils of brethren, perils of countrymen was beaten with rods, was drug out in the street, left for dead. And that's where he received the revelation of the man who was carried up. He said in Revelation 12, was called away in the, I mean, in 2 Corinthians 12, was called away in the third heaven. And in this passage of Scripture, it's an interesting dynamic of what he is saying. And now he's writing this final letter. And in the final letter, he points out four different followers of Christ. Four different followers of Christ. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on a couple of them because today we are wanting to look at chair number one. But when Paul starts writing this letter to Timothy, the first follower that he addresses is the dejected follower of Christ. Now, what does it mean to be dejected? Well, very disappointed. To have all confidence lost is what it means to be dejected. You can tell when someone is de de dejected, can't you? Can you? Especially if it's somebody you work with every day. You see them coming in and out, and all of a sudden their countenance is different. Their care has vanished away. Well, they once were passionate about, they're struggling to even put on a happy face. These people, many times, we call them cosmic killjoys because they're contagious. It's catching. Did you know bad attitudes were contagious? Did you know good attitudes were contagious? People come in and they have a bad attitude and it just, is, it just spreads over. This was young Timothy. Paul's young mentee, who had walked with Paul, had done ministry with Paul, had seen the miraculous with Paul, is now visiting him in his jail cell. And there is Paul in his jail cell, and his young Timothy comes. Here's what he says in chapter 1, of, in verse 1. 
of 2 Timothy. Paul gives his address, his greeting, and he says, I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life. And then he goes on down to verse 3, and he says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, and as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. Now, who is he writing this letter to? Young Timothy. And he says, I remember you in my prayers night and day. And young Timothy, I greatly desire to see you. But I am mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. Now, when I call to remember, young Timothy, this genuine faith that is in you, it didn't just start with you. It was in your mother. And before it was in your mother, it was in your grandmother. And this is a generational thing of faith. And he says, young Timothy, I want to remind you to stir up the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Timothy, do not be ashamed. Hold your head up. Flee the spirit of dejection that you are living under. Because I'm a prisoner. He says this. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of me as a prisoner. But share with me, young Timothy. What does that word mean, share in the Greek? Celebrate with. Celebrate with. Bring them over. Let's celebrate together. What? My sufferings. Celebrating, planning our, celebrate our first mission trip? No. Our second mission trip? No. Paul's third missionary journey? No. Planning a church in Thessalonica? No. Planning a church in Ephesus? No. Celebrate my chains. Celebrate my sufferings. Timothy, you look at my chains as torture. You look at my chains as a bitter end. But young Timothy, I look at it as a new beginning. Because as he wrote in verse 1, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and the promise of life. Now I'm going to tell you something. That people who sit in chair number one, they have a something that they're anchored to that is steadfast. They have something that they are anchored to that is unmovable. They have something that they are anchored to that is unshakable. That's why Paul wrote the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, therefore, my beloved Corinthians, be ye steadfast, be unmovable, be unshakable, and always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor of love is not in vain. You see, Paul did not allow his circumstance to dictate his physical and his mental capacity and his emotional well-being because he was anchored in the promise of life and realized that Nero had no power to take his life because Nero did not give him life and that if his life would no longer exist then it was God who gives life and it was God who takes life away and Paul was looking at young Timothy coming down the hallway of that jail cell that, that corridor leading to his cell and he would see him dejected with his head hanging low and he says I want you to understand something share with me in the things that you're embarrassed about Share with me in this. Boy, you know, that's one thing people who are in chair number two don't like to share with. When, when, when life gets a little bit messy and it gets uncomfortable, people who are in chair number two 
have a way of creating space. What is space? It's a barrier between you and the problem. Between you and someone who has a burden. Between you and someone who is overwhelmed. And Paul looks at young Timothy and he's not concerned. Look at what he says in verse 3. The thing that I think about and I pray about every day and every night, young Timothy, is you. Because you are my mentee and I am your mentor. And I want you to know something. Hold your head up. The first follower that we see in this epistle is the young Timothy, the, the dejected follower. But Paul does everything that he can to encourage him. The next follower that we see in this passage of scripture is the distracted follower. The one who is distracted. Things of the world are moving so fast that, that they're kind of like, uh, you know, the joke about people like me uh, who have ADD is they, they'll say squirrel, you know, because we're focused in. All of a sudden, a squirrel passes and we're like this. I mean, we're, we're looking over here and, and, and we're distracted and we're going a different direction. If you're not careful, the world will distract you and take you off of the love of your life, which is Jesus Christ. Because many people were in chair number one. I think when you talk about chair number one, we talk about it more in the past tense status than we do present tense being resolved to be in this chair number one. And so we talk about the distracted follower, and Paul addresses them in verse 13 of chapter 1 of, the, of Timothy. Look at this. I mean, he just lays it out. Number one, the dejected follower. Number two, look at what he tells the dejected follower. He says, hold fast to the pattern of sound doctrine. If you are dejected, then you begin to allow emotionalism to dictate your way of thinking. One of the greatest tragedies facing our nation is that we have people who are making emotional decisions. Their thinking, their decision making is driven on the emotion of today. How do I feel right now? How do I feel? Do I feel sad? Do I feel happy? If I feel sad, I want everybody else to feel sad. If I feel dejected, I want everybody else to feel dejected. And we allow emotionalism to determine how we are and how we move and how we walk. So Paul tells this dejected follower of Jesus Christ, he says, Son, hold fast to the pattern of sound doctrine, to the words and the sound teaching that you heard from me in faith. And hold to that love that is anchored into Jesus Christ. That the good things which was committed to you, kept by the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. And this you know, that all of those in Asia have turned against me. All of those in Asia have turned against me. From among me were Phygelus and Hermogenes. Boy, there you know your mama didn't love you, huh? Hermogenes. Paul. Paul being a determined follower of Christ. Can only think about his young mentee who is dejected. And he says, son, if you don't get a hold to your spirit of dejection, it will distract you. And when you become distracted, it will take 
are you out of the game? And he says, everybody in Asia has turned against me. You ever have anybody turn against you? I'm going to tell you, one of the five worst feelings in the world is when people that you put hope in, people that you trusted, people you had confidence in, turn and walk away and leave you and forsake you at one of the most vulnerable times in your life. Paul's sitting there in prison. He says, young Timothy, right now, you're just walking as a dejected follower of me. He says, but if not, you're not careful, you'll become so distracted by your spirit of emotional thinking that it will knock you completely out of the race, among whom are Phygelus or Hermogenes. They walk with us, Timothy. Timothy, they were the determined follower of Christ. They were the committed follower of Christ. But now they're nowhere to be found. I'm telling you today that our churches are filled with vacancies of people who once walked with God, who once were in chair number one, who moved to chair number two, and now are completely out of the race of faith. They no longer have anything to do with God. They no longer serve God. They, I'm not even talking about in a church somewhere. I'm just talking about every day walking with Him spiritually. They no longer serve God because the Spirit of of, of heresy came into their life their spirit of discouragement came into their life and it completely put them down the opposite track what we need today is people who are willing to be resolved I remember when I was a boy we would sing a song I am resolved no longer to linger charmed by the world's delight things that are higher things that are nobler these have allured my sight I will hasten to him hasten so glad and free Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. Paul says, Timothy, you got to be resolved, son. People who are in chair number one, when they should only be thinking about how do I get out of jail, how do I spare my life, is more concerned about those whom they've invested in. And many times even themselves. They did not love their life more than their faith. And that is the martyr's crown. Not only do we see the distracted follower here. Paul goes on in verse 16 and 17. He says, Lord, give them mercy. He says, Lord, give that grant, grant them mercy. And he says, Lord, please give, uh, please give grace and mercy to the household of one Asphorus, who often refreshed me in my chains and was not ashamed of them. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in the day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So here's what Paul does. He says, hey, Timothy. <clears throat> son you're walking with a spirit of dejection on you discouragement 
He says, if you're not careful, you'll become either so distracted, you'll no longer walk in faith, or you can double down and do what God's called you to do like one is force. Now, if you don't know much about this cat, there's a whole book of the Bible that was written to Philemon because he was a runaway slave that had become a compassionate follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes to Philemon and he says, whatever he owes you, put it on my account and grant him his freedom. And now Paul says in a jail cell, you remember that guy who was run away? You remember that guy that everybody was looking for? Be like him. Who when he should have been keeping a low profile was slipping into prison and refreshing me in my chains. And so boy, Paul is drawing this together in this chair number one. And then here's what we see. We see that determined follower. And what does a determined follower look like? Well, if you, if you go a little bit further, Paul just lays this out in this whole letter to young Timothy, his mentee. In chapter 2 and verse 2, it looks like this. You, my young dejected follower, my son in the ministry, be strong in the grace of God. And these things that you have heard from me, go commit them to other people. And he says... Commit them to faithful men who will be able to teach other faithful men. But here's what you have to do. He gives him the solution. He gives him the, the key to unlocking the door. He says you must fight as a faithful soldier. You must compete as a determined athlete. Be a soldier that is faithful. Not just be out there and showing up. But be leaving it all on the front line and be willing to give your life for the one who enlisted you. And then compete as you want to win. No athlete subjects his body to all the disciplines and gets out there and says, Oh, well, if I win today, it'll be okay. No, if they've given their whole life to compete in the athletics, into the Olympics that Paul and Timothy understood, then they're competing to win the crown. And he says, Young Timothy, I want you to be a determined athlete that is determined to be on the victor's throne. To be the one who is crowned. And then he says, not only do I want you to be like the committed soldier who fights unbelievably. The faithful fighter, the faithful soldier, and the committed athlete. But I want you to be patient as a skilled farmer. Because it doesn't happen overnight. Serve like you're trying to please the one who enlisted you. Compete like you're trying to win the crown and wait on the Lord. Because those who wait on the Lord shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. He tells young Timothy, he says, you've got to be patient. The farmer has to be patient. In the springtime, he takes all of his wealth and he goes and puts it in the earth and waits on the law of the harvest. He fights drought. He fights pestilence. He fights disease. 
He cultivates. He tends to. He nurtures these plants so that they may yield the harvest. And what Paul is telling young Timothy is, son, I want you to fight for the harvest. I want you to fight for the harvest. I want you to be committed to the harvest. And I want you to wait on the harvest because we are giving our life for a greater purpose. And then the last thing he says, not only do we see the, the uh, dejected follower and the distracted follower and the determined follower, one of us for us was the determined follower. He says, be like him. And then Paul says, oh, by the way, God, please grant him mercy. Please grant that guy mercy. And the last one is, is the embodiment of chair number one, the dependent follower of God. It's found in chapter 4. Paul says this, young Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought past tense. I will be in no more skirmishes. skirmishes. I will have no more battles. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith and finally because i was a dependent follower of christ to be a dependent follower of christ we must be empty of ourself because ourself will get up and run off the altar when times get hard when our emotions take over when our logic kicks in when common sense prevails that kind of faith will run but a person who has been emptied of themselves, poured out as an offering to Jesus Christ, where there is nothing left to them, will be a committed follower of Christ and will be dependent on the Holy Spirit for everything in their life. Paul says, I am empty of myself. I've given it all and I've finished the race and I am in chair number one and there is a crown coming because I've been faithful to the finish. Is it comfortable? No. Now you think this chair is rough. For Paul, this chair looked like a jail cell. For Paul, this chair had chains on it. For Paul, this chair became the guillotine. But you know what he said? <laughs> While they're sharpening the guillotine, the only thing I can think about is you. And those guys that abandoned the faith and left this chair for a chair of comfort, chair of ease. He said, but you, young Timothy, you occupy chair number one until he comes. But son, if you don't get rid of that spirit of rejection, a spirit of disappointment. You'll become so distracted. You will no longer be in the race of faith. You'll be sitting in a chair of comfort as a spectator. Saying, oh boy. I remember when. God did such and such. Today. Are you in chair number one? He said, oh, preacher. Woo. I don't want that sucker. Not after that picture you just painted. 
Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because you can look death in the eye and say, Who are you? You have no power over me. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your stay? wonder how people anticipate dying so gracefully they're sitting in chair number one they know they never die it's just promotion this is promotion Sunday at Family of Grace we move all of our kids up to the next level Paul said young Timothy for me to be absent from the body is to be present with Young Timothy, though this outward man is perishing and growing frailer every day, I'm like a kid on the inside. I'm running around and cutting cartwheels, somersaults, having the time of my life. Because eternity is just one breath away. Today, your head bowed. Would you come to this altar? If you're in chair number one, would you come to this altar and say, Lord, help me to remain committed? Would you say, Lord, help me to remain sold out? Lord, help me not to become distracted. Lord, help me not to be dejected. Lord, could you have your way in my life right now? Lord, thank you for letting me occupy such an uncomfortable space with such grace. And maybe you're here and you're one of those people that once sat in chair one and now you've moved to chair two. Maybe today you realize that it, it, it happened with good intentions. I mean, I mean, look, young Timothy had a right to be discouraged. His hero was facing the guillotine. His hero was about to lay down his life. He had a right to be distracted, uh, discouraged. Paul said, son, if you don't get over this distraction, it'll knock you out of the race of faith. You remember those old boys we started with? Vigelis and Hermogenes. Maybe you're one of them today. And you're just going through the motions. Maybe you've made it all the way to chair number three and, you've just, and you're just no longer really engaged. You're just going through the religious act today you just want to say Lord here's my life I give it all to you Father right now have your way in Jesus name Amen